This is the Monday, September 4th, 2017 episode of the History Author Show. Visit our iHeartRadio channel or subscribe on iTunes to enjoy a brand new episode every Monday morning. Oh, New York ain't New York anymore. How I miss those old pals of mine. The sawdust is gone from the floor. Where we harmonize, sweet Adeline, on the east side, west side, things ain't like before. There are tears in the eyes of the regular guys, oh, New York ain't New York anymore. If you're listening to this chat on or before September 12th, 2017, join Eva Stachniak for an author's evening at Manhattan's Kosciuszko Foundation. I'll be leading the discussion and saying a few words about this majestic book. For details, visit this episode's page at historyauthor.com. We hope to see you there. Hello and welcome. I'm your host, Dean Carianis, and this is the History Author Show on iHeartRadio. This week, our time machine travels back to the early 20th century Europe to meet a remarkable dancer who charts a course for success despite the upheavals outside and inside her own family. The book is The Chosen Maiden. It blends fiction and fact in a way that I just love in a novel, while also including cameos by real-life people of the period, such as prima ballerina Anna Pavlova, Coco Chanel, and Pablo Picasso. Our guide on this journey is Eva Stachniak, who has charted a unique course to success herself. She was born in a Poland still behind the Iron Curtain, emigrated to Canada in 1981, and has worked for Radio Canada International and Sheridan College, where she taught English and humanities. She's the best-selling author of The Winter Palace, Empress of the Night, Necessary Lies, and Garden of Venus. Visit her online at evastachniak.com, on Twitter at evastachniak, or facebook.com slash evastachniakauthor. That last name is spelled S-T-A-C-H-N-I-A-K. All right, now that we've settled into our seats at St. Petersburg's Marinsky Theater, let's join Eva Stachniak and meet the Chosen Maiden. I'm joined via Skype from Toronto, Canada by Eva Stachniak, author of the Chosen Maiden. Thank you for making time to chat about your novel with the History Author Show today. It's a great pleasure. Well, your novel was a great pleasure for me to read. And even though I don't know a lot about ballet and I'd never delved into this period before, I think it speaks to something very basic in the novel format that when it's done well, you can absorb anybody, even somebody who picks it up and has no idea what this dancing woman on the cover might be. So let's start off with that title, what draws us in on that cover, The Chosen Maiden. What does it refer to and where in your process of inspiration did you decide that would be the title? Well, the title refers to the role of The Chosen Maiden in the 1913 production of Rite of Spring in Paris, that very famous performance that ended up in fist fights and riots. The name The Chosen Maiden is the name of a dance that Václav Nezinsky created especially for his sister Branislava. She did not dance it in the end, but that's another story. I was really struck by the significance of this dance. In the original production of The Rite of Spring, of course, the chosen maiden is a young woman and she has to dance herself to death in order for life to continue. So the role calls for sacrifice and for death. But in reality, Branja Nizhenska will be the one to survive and to outlive her famous brother. So Vaslav will be the one who will be sort of chosen for sacrifice and she will be chosen for something else. And for me, it was a very, very significant realization that 
she was chosen to develop her own artistic visions, to become a choreographer in her own right. Life had a different chosen role for her. So I like the title. I like the fact that she didn't dance it in Paris. However, she danced the chosen maiden in life in a very, very different format. It makes it a great title. I love when you can sit there and contemplate that cover of the book and the title and the different ways that it works for you. I'm always looking for meaning in words, perhaps not surprisingly. But here, when you meet her, you meet Brania, which is the nickname for Bronislava Nijinsky. She's a real person in real life, and she's born in the last decade of the Victorian era, which is a great time of change for all humanity, but especially in this part of the world, in Russia and in Eastern Europe. I jotted down a few words about her, driven, self-motivated, analytical. She's also an excellent judge of people who envy her brother, Valislav. How did you come across her early memoirs and what about her voice enchanted you and made you decide that as an author, you wanted to live inside her head here for the years it would take you to write The Chosen Maiden? It all started with my last two novels about Catherine the Great. I finished them and I thought I don't really want to leave Russia yet <laughs> and that I would like to look at what happened to Catherine's Russia, you know, to look at the end of Catherine's Russia. So I started looking around among Catherine's descendants, but no one from the aristocracy really captured my imagination. And then I looked at the artists of the imperial theaters because dancers were called the wards of the Tsar and they were under special protection of the Tsarist court. So, you know, there was a connection to Catherine, so to speak. And then immediately, of course, I realized there's a whole lot of fascinating characters, especially at that time, and that the revolution in dance and ballet and art somehow mirrors the political revolution in Russia. So I knew I would find an inspiration there. And, you know, because I'm Polish, I'm sort of always looking for a Polish window into the story. So naturally, I turned to Václav Nizhinsky. And then, only then, I realized that he had a younger sister who was a talented dancer and a choreographer. And I also noticed that she wrote the memoirs. My first thought was, I just want to hear her voice. And I would like to know what she wrote about the family. I wasn't quite sure that she would be the heroine of the story. But I was sure she would mention someone perhaps I would focus on. But after reading the first few pages of early memoirs, I knew I had to write about her. It was just this instant attraction to the voice. And the voice is very fresh, very passionate, feisty. I realized very quickly that Bronya lived her life among giants of art, that she never lost the sense of self and the sense of her own dreams, her own purpose. I was also struck by her maturity, her true love for Václav, her brilliant brother, her love and the support of her family. So everything in that voice was fascinating. And the decision to actually turn into this voice and look into it for the novel came at that point. When did she write the early memoirs? Was this early in her life or later looking back? Well, she's been writing her diaries all her life, you know, and early memoirs is a compilation. You know, there's the younger voice. There is a whole passages written from the diary of a young dancer, which were notes that she took at school and during the first years of Ballet Russe. And then she also adds on to it her voice as an older woman remembering the past. The memoirs is written in several voices. She wrote the final version a few years before her death. And then her daughter was instrumental in having it translated into English and then published after her death already. The interesting thing is that she intended to write the second volume, which would cover more of her career rather than Václav's and the family, but never did it. And in the archives, they found notes and the proposals for that second volume, but that was never published. You mentioned that they were looked at as wards of the czar. And to me, I think of the way that hockey players were taken from their families. As soon as you showed any talent, you were put in there, put on the Red Army team and really worked 
that was your job. There was no social life. They looked at players in the West and said, well, we were stars, yes, but we were doing a job. We really were in the army. And I wonder if there's a connection to that through to today where people who show this great talent are still taken by the state, put in a special place that are given the resources, say, of the Olympic team and help to compete and create, be it art or sports or what have you. Absolutely. And that was the necessary thing is that if you, if the child is willing to sacrifice and if that art and this talent is also a vocation, it works. If it doesn't, then we have all sorts of problems. And for both for Vaslav and for Branya, that was a vocation. Dance was a vocation. So their education and their total dedication to dance from early childhood is visible. And it it really made them into who they were. But you're right that the system of training geniuses demands total dedication. And it does take the children away from families, from childhood. I don't think that, you know, when I read about uh, Vaslav's and Branya's childhood, it was a childhood, this was a childhood of dancers. Whatever they did was, in a sense, determined by the theater and dance and ballet. Even their childhood sports were chosen. They were allowed to do certain things only if they did not spoil their chances for the future. So the mother and the teachers paid attention to what they did. You know, swimming was allowed, but maybe riding a bike wasn't. Dancing was the absolutely most important activity in their lives. But what was true is that for both Vaslav and Branislava, that was also their dream. So there was no discrepancy between what the people around them wanted and what they wanted. It's part of their life. Branya evaluates her talent to dance by saying, quote, dancing is like breathing. It is in me, woven into my body. All I need to do is let it out. So more than really part of their life, it is their life. And the other things must somehow support it. If something like swimming is going to help you be a better dancer, then okay, you'll do that. If riding a bike is not going to, then it just gets pushed aside because it's a weed here in this garden that she's trying to grow her talent in. And we don't think a lot about those involuntary things like breathing. I thought that that was a great image of hers. Because you had to get inside her head to illustrate how she was becoming not just somebody who danced, but a dancer. There's a line between that. There's a line between somebody that writes, right, and a writer. So I wonder, aside from reading her early memoirs, what did you do to get that in your head to become the voice of somebody who is a dancer? That's what they define them, and that's what everything they do is aimed towards. That was the hardest part actually, because I am not a dancer. I've never been a dancer myself. I don't, I couldn't draw on any of my own personal experience. However, I'm a researcher, so I could read a lot. I could go through the archival materials. I could read memoirs of dancers from that time, which I did, but that only takes you to a certain level. I still had to shadow real dancers, talk to them. And I'm extremely grateful to these new friends of mine, the dancers who took me under their wing, who took me to the rehearsals, who talked to me for hours. And my questions were at first very, very basic and almost naive. I would say, you know, we look at people moving in the street. You know, I look at them and you look at them. You are a dancer. What do you see that I, a writer, do not see? And the answers to these questions were really eye-opening. They taught me to look at movements. You know, I'm a writer. I react to words. They react to how people move. And they notice movements, my most minute movements, their grace or their lack of grace. It, very patiently, they taught me how to do it. So I used all that in the novel. It took me a long time, but it was also very interesting because it was like being given a new pair of eyes and, and being told, like, I'll, I'll show you something you didn't think of. That's the pleasure of writing, that you can become someone else and that you can learn to perceive and experience the world through the eyes of another human being. And, and I love that part of writing. It's, it's my greatest inspiration and the greatest joy. Well, you passed it on to me 
in The Chosen Maiden because while I can't claim to know anything really about ballet, it drew me into the story in such a way that you weren't holding me on the outside. You weren't saying, okay, man from radio in New Jersey that grew up, you know, watches a lot of football on Sunday, this, this is not a book for you. It was a book that welcomed me in and held my interest because you start with those family stories that anybody can relate to, stories about being in school, stories about competing with your peers. That was all things that anybody could relate to. And then she just happens to also have this life that is, I'm going to be a dancer and that my brother is a great dancer and people are jealous of him. The dance has become so much a part of the story that just like with her, that all you have to do is breathe it out. This story is something you just breathe in and learn it. And it's really a credit to your writing and choreography. You choreograph a novel just as you do a dance. So just how did you go about that, crafting the novel so that it would appeal to somebody who was completely outside of the world of ballet and not just dancers and their admirers? I think it helped that that was my own natural way of into that story because I, I got interested in the Nizhinskis because of their family, because of who they were, what kind of people they were. I wanted to see, you know, what allows a woman like Bronya to live through such calamitous political upheavals and then succeed and retain her humanity and be a mother and a daughter and an artist. So I got into dancing because I fell in love with the people who were doing it. So naturally, the novel follows that route. And so the other part, the other entry into that story is that Bronya, her mother, had father were Polish. I mean, Václav, of course, too. The experience mirror a bit the family story of very many Polish families, including my own. You know, I was brought up by a grandmother who was Rania's age, more or less. And my mother was like Irina, you know, that was the generation. So I I had the very intimate, very, very intimate knowledge of the mindset of the women of this this generation. And that came from my childhood. So I could draw upon that. You know, if she were not a dancer, but a painter or had any other profession, I would find my way into her as well. So dance was just what she loved. And she became my guide into dance. And I, I'm hoping that, you know, as, as you have so kind of said, that I am becoming a guide for the reader into that world of dance, because I had very honestly learned it myself. And therefore, I can I can pass it on. You know, it's it's a new love of mine and very, very deep by now. But it wasn't three years ago. I, I wasn't really that knowledgeable or informed about most of the things relating to dance. But I did have that intimate knowledge of the family structure and the fam family dynamics that I saw in the Nizhinskis. What a wonderful thing to be able to give readers and a wonderful way to be able to use the novel format to be able to come to somebody and say, you're that kid, maybe I mentioned sports. The first time you're taken to a baseball game or a hockey game, or you go to a comedy show, that was Mel Brooks. His uncle was a cab driver and somebody gave him two tickets and he had to crouch down in the front seat of the cab, Mel Brooks, and then down by the feet because he wasn't allowed to be in the cab empty, you know, without his light on. And he said, I went to that theater the first time and it was just something that blew me away. I, I didn't stop laughing the whole time. And I said, that's what I want to do. And mm. The Chosen Maiden allows us to do that in book form. And describing something that's so vivid is just incredible when you're able to bring people in in such a way that they're enjoying the story almost in spite of themselves that there's someone like me that doesn't know dance. The most I know was about the Rockettes because I work at Radio City and downstairs I see Rockettes and there's no mistaking them when you see them walk by, not just because they tend to be tall and they tend to be athletic and they stand out from the other people that are just walking, but you notice how people People carry themselves. I have a friend who was a Rockette, and we've talked about this a few times. Her husband happens to be Polish, by the way. But we talk about it, and I say, that's just a way to carry yourself, to hold yourself. Mm -hmm. It's not as if it's something you put down, which I find fascinating about dancers now, having read The Chosen Maiden. It's something that 
you never stop being that. We say that in the music industry. We say drummers never stop drumming, right? They're always tapping something. If it's a fork, mm-hmm. if, it's a, if it's their foot, it's something they always have a rhythm or a song in their head. So this is something you really absorb here. And as a writer, you are able to weave that into everything that she's doing in every facet of her life. It must be wonderful for you to have those actual dancers now come back to you and see the book and enjoy it. They are quite wonderful. I have many dancers come up to me and say that, first of all, that they never found a a moment in which they didn't believe that Branya was a dancer and a choreographer, which was a great compliment to me because I was trying to get exactly that effect. But one dancer came up to me and said that you put into the story thoughts that we dancers think but never tell anyone. Wow. And I thought, oh, my God, I would love to know what these are because I have no (laughs) idea. But on the other hand, I thought, well, thank you to my dancer friends who obviously must have been very, very honest with me and very forthcoming with their account what it meant to be a dancer because everything that I put in, I must have heard from them. So... That was one of the greatest pleasures of writing The Chosen Maiden was that ability to enter the experience of that was foreign and alien to me before. Novels are a special challenge for doing interviews because we don't want to give away too much of the plot. For that reason, I like to ask authors to read an excerpt of the book to give listeners a flavor for their prose. You have a little bit for us today, so set up this selection for us and tell the listeners why you chose it to explain and illustrate The Chosen Maiden. So uh, I would like to read a fragment that describes the dance of The Chosen Maiden, which was Branya's dream role, the one that she unfortunately never danced on stage. However, she did learn it, and she danced it for Vaslav during early rehearsals for the Rites of Spring. I would like to read that fragment. The year is early 1913. Vaslav has just asked Bronya to join him at the studio, and that's what happens. This is your dance, Bronya, my brother says. First, Vaslav plays Stravinsky's music for me from memory, Le Sacre du Printemps, Not all of it, but enough to imagine the scenes that lead to my dance. Pipers piping, young men telling fortunes, a bent old woman hobbling in. Young girls with painted faces joining them. Old men interrupting these frolics to bless the spring earth. Preparing for the night games, the choosing of the virgin who will dance herself to death. My brother walks to the center of the room. For a long moment, he just stands there frozen, his body chained to the earth, absorbing the weight of what is to come. Suddenly he staggers as if hit by a blow. Then suddenly he stirs and begins to move with more and more force. He throws himself around the room, a dancer possessed, freed from himself in the realm beyond ecstasy and pain, beyond endurance. Until at the height of this freedom, he falls to the ground and freezes again. He's panting. Sweat is pouring down his forehead and his neck, soaking the folds of his white shirt. The air around him is sharp, foxy. He lifts himself up from the floor and motions to me to repeat what I've seen. The dance is already firm in my memory, jerky yet fluid, profoundly, inseparably mine. Everything I've worked on for so long feeds into it. My high jumps, my solid sturdiness. I dance it, move for move. From fawn, I know that Vaslav demands absolute precision, that in his ballets, a dancer is a small cog in a giant wheel. The chosen maiden doesn't need to understand what she's doing. She is performing an ancient rite. The desires that push her are those of a being far mightier than her. I dance well. I can see it in Vaslav's eyes. There will be no praise. I am not expecting any. But there will be no criticism either. As he watches me, his own body mimics some of my moves. And it is like seeing myself in the mirror. I know where there will be corrections. I can tell which moments are still too light, not grounded enough. I dance until the final collapse, the ultimate sacrifice without which the new life cannot be born. I stay supine on the floor, motionless, staring at the ceiling. It is cracked and stained. Inside the lamp, a thick, dark layer of insects has gathered, 
just as in the apartments we lived in a long time ago. Vaslav bends over me. His hand reaches for mine, lifts me up. He doesn't have to ask me what I think of this dance. My thoughts are like veins on the neck of a horse. They're trembling visible under the skin. The chosen maiden is what I want ballet to be. That bold, that powerful, that modern. Incredible, because this is a time you really paint for us, Branya dancing. We don't get to see that a lot in the book. We really, I'm saying see it, but really we never get to see it because we're reading a book. But you paint that so vividly. How long did that take you as you're going through the process to distill that down into something that's so vivid and powerful? Well, some scenes take longer. I don't think this one took that long because by then I saw her. I think that the challenge for writing is I have to see and then The moment I see, I can write. And then when I see and write, then you, the reader, can also see what I have written. So that visual aspect of it is very, very important. And you're right, we don't have any footage of either Vaslav dancing or Branya dancing. They were never filmed. We have some still photographs. Maybe we have a one or two seconds of Vaslav in the fawn, you know, a very, very sort of fuzzy picture of him moving. But we have to rely on the description of these dances. So I read a lot of these descriptions and I was able to see it in my own eyes. And then because of that, I was able to write. And I'm so glad that you can see it, too. That's what I like when I listen to myself, listen for a word that I use, something like see, and then I say, well, take a step back, just like the author does, and say, I'm not really, but you made me feel as if here, just sitting in the studio, I blanked out, and there I am watching them on stage, and I'm actually wanting to clean the bugs out of that light fixture because she (laughs) deserves something better to stare up at there. That's a fabulous detail. That's something anybody would get, right? And it just shows that she's there in this small area of beauty, and yet there's ugliness and death and other things that are right around her there. So just a great scene. I love that. Thank you. As a Polish family, the Nijinskis are walking a narrow line in Russia. This is another layer, another challenge, which is something wonderful. You put them in the crucible, as they call it, in a plot. And part of that is they're going to have to be better than everybody, and they're going to have to make sure that they don't get in trouble, that they keep their noses clean. How much of this cultural experience that you've spoken about growing up in Poland, dominated by the Soviets at the time, did you draw upon to illustrate her challenge many years before that, growing up in The Chosen Maiden? Well, if you are Polish, you always sort of live watching over your shoulders politically, So Russia is this giant next door. It is dangerous, but it also is fascinating. And and what is fascinating is not the political situation in Russia, but the cultural attraction. There's a magnet of Russian literature, Russian music, Russian dance. So even though you may be wary of Russia as a political structure, you still read and listen and admire what they have produced. So that was part of my growing up. My grandmother was born under Russian partition. So she was like uh, Eleonora Bereda, Bronya and Vaslav's mother. She was born what was politically Russia at that time. So she had to go to a Russian school. And I, I heard these echoes of these stories when I was growing up. Also, of course, you know, if you're Polish and if you live in any of the Eastern European lands, you, you sort of had to go through in this generation, you had to go through the Russian Revolution and the changes of, you know, the World War One and R- Russian Revolution and uh, World War Two. These all these political upheavals were Russia and Germany, but Russia in this case are very, very prominent. So, so I couldn't escape it, and I think that was part of the attraction. That's why I didn't want to leave Russia after Catherine. You know, I really wanted to sort of put myself in the position in which I could relive these years of the breakdown of the Tsarist system and the emergence of the Soviet Russia. So that was very much on my mind. And, and I'm glad that that turned out to be attractive um, and that you, you you responded to it. And yes, you know, the, the Tsarist Russia that the Nijinskis grew up under was dangerous to minorities. And especially the Polish minority was under suspicion because of constant, you know, sort of uprisings and plotting against the Tsarist regime. I try not to be too much in your face from the political side, but I I drop hints that will 
let the reader realize that being a minority has its consequences that you know if you go and and participate in a protest against the Tsar and if you happen to be Polish you know if you are caught the punishment is much going to be much greater as if you were Russian so I do put these aspects in the novel but I also put other things that I've actually found quite surprising that for example when Vaslav and Bronya graduate from the Tsar's school they one of their gifts appreciation for their high standards and achievements is the New Testament in Polish so there is a recognition that they are of Polish origin so I wasn't quite aware of the fact that there was attempts to acknowledge the fact that if you are Polish, that you have some other rights in Russia. So it was educational for me to notice that too. But yes, the shadow of Russia is there, as it is in, in Poland right now. It's it's part of being from that part of the world. As you spoke, I thought, interesting that you decided to move and make a new life in Canada, because my wife being from Canada, I think it's a little bit similar in the cultural impact because you have a neighbor in an apartment complex and there's a big party next door and very loud and Canada has Canadian content laws all they want, but they're not going to miss the fact that there is still a draw. There's this romance, there's this loud cultural impact that's coming from right next door. Do you ever notice that sort of thing in Canada where you are a person that has been able to absorb so much because first you're in Poland, you're absorbing Russia and all these other nations that are around you, and then you come to Canada where you're absorbing the whole British Commonwealth feel, everything in Canada and North America, but also the U.S. Absolutely, yes. And it's this elephant and a mouse uh, story. You know, you're in bed with an elephant, but you're small, even though the Canadian territory is actually physically grand and, and big. But we, we do feel dwarfed by our southern neighbor and yet attracted. You know, the energy, what is coming from the U.S. is um, exciting and it's frightening. And it's uh, there's there's this sense of, you know, how can we become Canadian without thinking all the time about the neighbor to the south. And in fact, we cannot. I think we we as Canadians sort of define ourselves in opposition to the U.S. as we in Poland defined ourselves in opposition to Russia and Germany. So I find a lot of parallels, even though, you know, Poland, of course, developed this very, very strong national identity. And I think Canada is much slower and didn't need to in, in many ways and was never invaded. It was never partitioned. So so that sense of national identity is much softer in Canada, which I like, actually. It gives me more freedom and I can be Canadian in a way maybe I couldn't if I lived in a, in a country like the U.S., the demand to be patriotic is much softer here. I think it's very compelling to me, but maybe because it's in such contrast to, let's say, Polish national identity or the American national identity. So I think that's part of my love for Canada. We're speaking with novelist Eva Stachniak, who joins us from Toronto, Canada. She's the author of The Chosen Maiden. Her website is evastachniak.com. You can find her at evastachniak on Twitter or facebook.com slash author. Her last name is spelled S-T-A-C-H-N-I-A-K. The Toronto Star calls The Chosen Maiden, quote, a tale of intrigue, love, betrayal, and redemption set in the realm of art and artists, exploring the line between dedication and obsession creation and madness. The star also says our guest weaves together beautifully the myriad of moments that bring this fascinating family and period to life, unquote. I want to focus on that word moments. Ballet is very much about hitting things just right, only millimeters between a step and a fall. And listen to me now, I've read this book and see, I know some things about ballet now. They've seeped into my mind. I'm realizing <laughs> reading my own question here, how much I've learned. Writing is very similar. For example, you offer vivid descriptions without lingering too long on any one beat. I never felt that I was sitting there in the audience staring at the stage waiting for the next act or saying hurry up already. What were some of your favorite moments in The Chosen Maiden that maybe you had to pare down as much as you might want to linger over them? Or by this point with you having a bunch of books under your belt, are you pretty good here about having an internal metronome that tells you when it's time to move to the next scene? 
I am better, but not <laughs> entirely good. I, I have to write things that I delete, you know, I that's one of my characteristics as a writer. So I, I write very extensive drafts and then I distill them, you know, and, and I only know what needs to be distilled after I read them first. So uh, there were scenes like, for example, I spend a lot of time in the earlier drafts on uh, the creation of specific ballets, like, for example, the Fawn, the, the first ballet that Vaslav creates, because it was such a important, painful, exhilarating time for Branya. You know, it, it never happened to her before that she was a clay in his hands and he was modeling the, the ballet on her. So I think the scene was three or four times as long in the in the drafts as it is in the in the final novel. But then I realized at some point that it's too long. I don't really need to go for that long. I all I need is specific moments. But had I not written all of them extensively, I wouldn't know which ones are the pivotal ones. Uh, the same with the Kiev section. You know, I, that 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 had to be cut several times just because. You know, it's so easy to be drawn into. This is such a wonderful moment in the Kiev artistic history. You know, the explosion of so many artistic trends. And Bronya Nijinska is there in the middle of it. And she's becoming an artist in her own right. So a very important part of her life. So I, I had to stop myself from describing every poet and every painter and every artistic director or actor whom with whom she was friends and who influenced her and whom she influenced at that time. But eventually, you know, it helps to have written other books and, and it helps to have a good editor as well. And I had a very good editor who would say, yes, it's fascinating, it's good, but I think we need to cut that scene down to, let's say, half and letting me choose what I want to keep and what I want to cut. So experience and the process of writing you know it's I, I'm resigned to the fact that I always write six times as much as I need at the end and then I cut it's nice to be able to have an editor who will tell you that and also to have social media today I frequently now say to authors it's nice to be able to have a website as you do have a twitter feed and be able to share some of that you can almost fool yourself and say okay, I'm making this bargain with my inner muse that wants a six-page scene on one thing and say, I'll share that later. I'll still get that out there to the readers and talk about this exciting part, but it doesn't have to all go between the covers. It's also better sometimes not to say too much, you know, let the reader wonder. I, I'm a great believer in secrets and mystery. <laughs> well, you don't need that many always either to to hint at something. I use the example Eleanor Rigby by the Beatles to illustrate how an economy of words can really be effective. You know exactly what she looks like from that story. You know so much about her by Eleanor Rigby puts on a face that she keeps in a jar by the door. Just in that little bit of lyric, you know so much about her and we don't have to hear from the Beatles what her race is, what her age is, what her ethnicity is, what language she's speaking, what kind of room that is, and in what city in the world. When you read a book like The Chosen Maiden, you say, wow, I don't need to know every little bit of mechanics about ballet because it's something that can be very intimidating to learn about. You figure, oh gosh, I don't know any of the steps. I won't be able to enjoy this book because it's going to make me feel dumb, frankly. But you are able to enjoy it because you put us in there with the key things that everybody can relate to. Thank you. The family dynamic is one of those things as well. Brania asks herself at one point, when do I realize there is something different about Stasik? Is that something she talked about or was it a challenge for you to fill in those blanks with him versus Valislav, who's the other talented dancer in the family? Here's this boy who is in a family of dancers and they almost don't know what to do with him. It's, it's heartbreaking. Well, Stasik is the oldest brother. He was the firstborn. And then comes Vaslav, and then Branya is the youngest. But I found that the archives in the Library of Congress, the Bronislava Nizhinska collection, has a tremendous wealth of materials, also personal items. So I was never short of hints of how she felt about anything. You know, I always found echoes in letters or in some diaries or in conversations that she recorded. She was a wonderful writer and she she could record whole conversations even years after they happened, you know, as if she were writing a novel. So Stashig was there. 
that boy who went through a traumatic experience is, you know, he was three years old and he had an accident that probably, maybe if not caused, definitely in some ways uh, abbreviated his symptoms. He very slowly but surely withdraws himself from the family. And the hints that she includes in the passages in her diaries and the conversations with her mother that she wrote down speak of this great loss and pain. You know, that that was a great tragedy for them. The fact that he had to be put into a sanatorium, which was a mental hospital, really. And then that he had to be abandoned because in 1917, during the revolution, when Branya, her mother and her family moved to Kiev, they cannot visit Stashik. And then in all these political upheavals, you know, he somehow is lost. You know, all they know when they eventually receive a piece of paper from the sanatorium that he died, they were not aware that he was sick, that nothing happened. And they, they are left with this lingering suspicion. What really happened? Did he starve to death? Was he abandoned? Was he abused? We, we were not there to help him. So I think that that... That was very clear in the materials that I picked up. And, and again, I tried to hint at it because, uh, you know, Branya is my narrator. She's thinking about her brother all the time. And, and yet she also understands that there wasn't that much they could have done. You know, they were cut off from him. It was a revolution. Russia was burning. They tried to send him parcels. They tried to help. But in the end, you know, the, the history is stronger sometimes than the human will. And there isn't that much you can do. But I never felt that I was at a loss in terms of the material. How fortunate for you as a writer to have so much information and such an honest narrator who's giving you so much. Yes, but there was also a danger of it, you know, because I wasn't mm. writing a biography. You know, had I re- <laughs> yeah. So, so there was this moment when I, in the process of writing, where the historical voice of Bronislava Nijenska was so strong in my head that I thought, how can I possibly write a novel, and especially in the first person? And that took me some time to free myself from it. You know, I had to distill that voice. I had to translate it into contemporary experience of contemporary dancers. I had to go through a lot of mental training and retraining and listening to her to just to get the essence of that voice and not to copy it. Because, you know, I think that if the reader wants to hear true historical Bronislava Nizhinska, then pick up her early memoirs, right? Pick up her letters. Mm. I want to give something else. I want to give the essence of that, but it's a novel. It's not a biography. So in some ways it was wonderful. And in some ways it turned out to be a bit difficult as well. Another thing a great historical fiction book does is make you want to go learn some of the real history. So I certainly appreciated that part. There's a Latin phrase that appears a few times in the book, Homo homini lupus. What does it mean and what purpose did you want it to serve for readers of The Chosen Maiden? It means men is a wolf to man. And it is a very popular Roman proverb that I heard all my childhood in the Poland that I grew up in, that both my grandmother often repeated it and my mother. A whole generation of men and women in Poland repeated it. For me, when I was growing up, it was a very chilling reminder of what was happening in these, what Timothy Snyder calls bloodlands, you know, the lands of the Eastern Europe that lived through two world wars, revolutions, occupations, and now Nazi occupation, Soviet occupation, communist oppression. A kind of a reminder that, first of all, that evil exists and it is real, that not everything will turn out for the best. But also a reminder that you can expect the worst of others. You can expect the good, but you can also expect the worst, that you can be at the mercy of ruthless people, ruthless regimes, and that it takes tremendous courage to stay positive in this world. So for me, it's a it was a very, very great reminder of these times. And, and I think of the courage of this generation of, of men and women who lived in spite of it. You know, the Europe, uh, especially Eastern Europe, does not share the North American optimism, the sort of conviction that things will turn out for the best, that perhaps human nature, humans are good to each other deep down. I think we are very suspicious of that goodness. We know there is goodness, but that goodness resides in family, in friends, in very few people around us. So I think I wanted 
you know, with this proverb that I heard so many times, I wanted the readers of The Chosen Maiden just to be aware that that's what these people think. And that's the reason why they are suspicious of others and they maybe sound distant or seem distant. That's the lesson that they've learned from history. If you've ever taken a coat out of the closet, everybody, after, say, the long summer and you put it on and you put your hand in your pocket and you find that you left maybe $20, $40 in there and you say, all right, I forgot I had that money. That's what that moment is like for me when I realize that you put those words, homo homini lupus, in the mouths of Brania's mother to pass that wisdom on to her. And now I'm seeing a direct line here between the author, your own experience, and your own mother and grandmother and hearing this growing up, and the characters you drew. I, I just find that fantastic. I love that kind of thing. Thank you. Readers will notice that Branya narrates the chosen maiden in the first person present tense. Why that choice? Well, real Bratislava Nezinska could be very intimidating, especially to the dancers and to people around her who are not her family or friends. I think that part of it was that she felt that she was a woman and therefore had to fight much harder for her position as choreographer. She was also brought up in a much more formal culture, Russian culture and Polish culture. So she insisted on that distance. And, and I picked up that distance from some of her voice, and I didn't want it in the novel. I wanted the story to be direct, and I wanted the reader to be able to touch her. You know, I didn't want her to tell the story to anybody by herself, you know, because with herself, she won't have to keep any distance. So that was one of the decisions. The difficulty, of course, was that her first-person voice exists, as I said already, in the diaries and in the letters, and I had to distance myself from that as well. So difficult choice, but the payoff was wonderful. And, and I do hear from readers saying that she is extremely close to them, that this first person really puts the reader right into the story. So I think I was right. And if I tried to do anything else, that we would sort of see more of a Bronislava Nezinska, the real historical character, rather than Bronya Nezinska, my character from The Chosen Maiden. And that word again from that Toronto Star review, the myriad of moments, that writing in the present tense keeps you in that moment with her. You're right there in the shoes. And it's exciting, especially with ballet, when you're always wondering, am I going to miss that step? Am I going to fall? Am I going to hit my mark exactly right? So I thought that that was a great way to be reading it because you're right there with her taking that journey in her eyes. Yes. And I think also she's, you know, I'm in her body. I, I, spend a lot of time trying to make sure that the reader realizes that being a dancer is like being an athlete. You know, you, you are injured, you are constantly perfecting your body, but you're also fighting with weakness and with pain. And you have to be physically engaged as well, not only on the level of words, but also on the level of feelings of the hurting feet, of the pain in the muscles, of the sweat, of all these aspects of dancing that I came to appreciate the moment I became friends with so many. One final question. Picture the person like myself who might not have picked up the chosen maiden. Make your pitch to those readers. Why should they maybe stretch outside of their usual reading material to meet Brania and enjoy her story? Well, I think that Brania's story, first of all, is, is a very important part of the story of Western art. She lived among the giants of dance, you know, Nizhensky, Diaghilev, famous ballerines, uh, Karsavina, Pavlova, Stravinsky, all these people were people with whom she created uh, her ballets, and, and that was part of her life. So by reading her story, you are put in a very, very important part of Western cultural history. She witnessed the birth of the modern ballet. She helped form its shape. Her voice is extremely important because from the historical point of view, but also it is important on the personal level, on the very human level, because even if we forget that she is a ballet dancer, we, we read a story of a very, very strong woman who survived what could have crushed her and managed to raise a family who was an artist, but also a, a mother and a daughter who is a woman who knows what it means to resist the regimes that are trying to engineer her soul, that she is a woman who understands the power of human resilience. So for me, this is the story, 
um, that's a very contemporary story in many ways. It's historical, but also contemporary. It, it does what, for me, historical fiction should do, is to relate the past and the present and retell the past from the position of the present. And I hope that my readers will enjoy it and also get something out of it, you know, some spiritual uplifting, some sense of having witnessed an important moment in someone's life. Well, Eva Stachniak, author of The Chosen Maiden, I am very glad that you put your novel in my hands because I very much enjoyed it. I benefited from watching this amazing medium of dance, something that I wouldn't have thought was even possible to experience this way in a novel. I enjoyed that. I enjoyed taking this route. I will not be a ballet dancer, but great (laughs) fiction takes you there inside one of the great dancers. Thank you so much for spending time with us today and best of luck with the book. Thank you so much, Dean. Thank you. Again, the novel is The Chosen Maiden. As always, you can find the Amazon link to purchase your copy at historyauthor.com. And we hope you will click through there or even navigate via the Amazon banner on our homepage the next time you purchase anything from Amazon. You go to historyauthor.com, we take it Amazon, and amazon.com gives us a small portion of every dollar you spend at no additional charge in your shopping cart. For just a few extra taps on your mouse, you can help keep the flux capacitor on our time machine humming like usual. My sincere thanks to Eva Stachniak for joining us and for transporting us back to a wonderful world of art, dance, and some struggle mixed in, all through the eyes of an amazing dancer, a true artist. Visit her online at evastachniak.com, follow her at evastachniak on Twitter, and toss her a like at facebook.com slash evastachniakauthor. That last name is S-T-A-C-H-N-I-A-K. And while you're at it, let us know what you think of the book and the interview on Twitter at History Dean or Facebook.com slash History Author. That's it for this installment of the History Author Show. I hope you'll join us for next Monday's all-new interview right here on iHeartRadio. And if you're an iTunes subscriber, please take a minute to leave us a review. Well, until our next trip into the past together, thanks so much for time traveling with us today, and have a great week. We still call it Broadway, but what's in a name? Take it from Georgie, it isn't the same. On the east side, west side, things ain't like before. There are tears in the eyes of the regular guys. Oh, New York ain't New York anymore.